You know, it's amazing. At 8.15 when we start, how few people are here. And at 8.25, it's like, where'd you guys come from? Cool. Kent said, thanks for coming. I feel the same way. How many here are feeling under the weather or are coming from households under the weather? Just a few. Wow. We're dropping like flies at the Halpin House this, uh, this week. So I don't know who will make it here later today or who won't. But uh, I know we just prayed, but I'm going to pray again for just a second. Lord, thanks that you are the great, holy, high, and mighty one. And Lord, as we humble ourselves before you this morning, we simply ask that you'd pour out more of the knowledge of you on us such that we see you as you are and are transformed more fully into your image. And Lord, thanks this Thanksgiving weekend for the multitude ways you have poured out blessing and grace and salvation and gifts and and food and housing and plenty and we are so thankful thanks also Lord, most especially for the gift of eternal life and the fact that we're headed to our home with you in a feast that never ends in Jesus name amen guys we're in week six of our series behold your God I won't go into all the introduction I have on some of the other weeks but briefly We've said this whole series is predicated on the truth of Psalm 115, verse 8, and also on a great quote from G.K. Beale out of his book, We Become What We Worship. And the book title there gives it away that in fact we become transformed into the likeness and image of that which is the object of our faith, of our affections, of our worship. And so our goal has been to look at God as He presents Himself in the Scriptures in a number of ways so that seeing Him more fully as He is, we can be transformed more fully into that likeness. So, if you've been here in the previous weeks, we looked at God as Creator. You know, the God from whom everything came. We, Paul said in Acts, we live and move and have our being in Him. We wouldn't be here apart from God. And nothing else would be either. And we said God from Job, He's the one who leads the constellations through the universe. He's the Creator. Everything has come from Him. We also looked at God as the one who makes and keeps promises. Sometimes that's just a statement He makes. He says, I'm going to do something. Sometimes that's a promise. And sometimes it's a covenant. It's a special promise that He makes. But God is the one who looks out, sees us, sees our needs, and says, you guys need something. And so I'm going to give it. He makes and He keeps His promises. We also looked at God as the provider do you remember Hagar in the wilderness or King Hezekiah? I love the phrase in uh, 2 Kings 22, I think it is. Hezekiah, when Isaiah came back and said, God says that He's heard your prayers and He's seen your tears. He, he knows what's going on in your life. He's going to take care of it. That's the God we serve by way of God as provider. Last time we looked at the God of awe that is that our god is the ultimate object of all awe and we said that included elements of fear reverent fear and dread and joy and longing and desire he's all of that he's the ultimate object of awe all of these things that we've looked at god in the past weeks have been along the lines of what we would typically call theology proper it's it's knowledge about God specifically and here broadly. This morning we're shifting gears and for the last three weeks of this series we're going to shift to what would properly be called Christology. We're going to look at God in the person of Christ. Now this morning we're not doing so 
with the thought of, of Jesus as the high and lifted up one, the exalted one, as we have in these former series, we're looking at Jesus this morning related to the one who humbled himself to death on the cross. So thinking about the previous weeks, if seeing God in his exaltation and glory gives us a sense of awe and worship, and I hope that it has, seeing God in Christ in his humiliation gives us confidence in his commitment to love us no matter what, and gives us a model for living we can't afford to miss. Guys, on some of these previous messages... Um, the application really is, is very broad and general in that if I see God as He is, I reverence Him. And, and specific application follows from that. But the application there is broad and general. This morning when we look at Christ in His humiliation, uh, not His glory, but His humiliation will be in Isaiah uh, in the passages that call him the suffering servant, when we get to the point of application, it's very, very specific. So as we're reading through this this morning, as we're thinking through this, and by the way, we're text heavy, and it's warm in here. So maybe get your Bibles out, use your imagination. It's warm in here. It's really warm. Uh, maybe just up here. Uh, get your text out. or <laughs> yeah. You know, there's always a battle for the thermostat in this place. So, Mike lost this morning. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Just kidding, Mark, really. Uh, <clears throat> where was I? Totally lost. Okay. Uh, specific application, that's it. In contrast to seeing God high, exalted, lifted up, absolutely the other, different from us, it engenders a kind of reverence for us. It engenders worship because we see Him as He is. But when we see Christ in His humiliation, guys, it makes this huge call on us very practically every day. Everything we say, think, act, do. All of this comes to play when we look at Christ in His humiliation. So, Thanksgiving Day is over. And Black Friday is over. We stayed home. But this means Christmas is around the corner, right? So, we're going to be thinking, if we haven't already, about Christmas. And so, whether they're cards that come in our mailbox, or they're TV shows, or whatever, when we think of Jesus in the next four or five weeks, generally the imagery that comes to mind is the rosy-cheeked baby in the manger, right? And that's good, and that's fine, and I'm for that. We're, we're good with that. Um, if you think of the Incarnation just along this line, this is hard enough to get to in our minds. This is hard enough to conceive. Think about this for just a minute. How does the God of eternity, who has no beginning or end, limit Himself as a man in time? Because the incarnation is God of very gods taking on humanity. And He's really both. Fully God and fully man. How does the eternal God, no beginning, no end, somehow limit Himself as a man in time? How does that happen? See, descriptively, the Scripture tells us this happens, but we just don't know how. Or how can the One who is omnipotent, who is in Himself all power, take on the physical limitation of a single human body? How can the power of all powers somehow at the same time come on and take on the limitations of a human body? How does the omnipresent One who inhabits the immeasurable vastness of the universe 
live in the little land of Israel for his life on earth. How does, how does he do that? How does the second person of the Trinity fully and really take on our humanity, this is the incarnation, God enfleshed, while fully remaining God with all the attributes of God? How is Jesus fully God and fully man at one and the same time? And I don't know. But I know he is because that's what the scripture says. So just the incarnation along the Christmas line of thinking, Jesus coming as a baby in Bethlehem, that's hard enough to grapple with. But, but taking that a step further, God in Christ coming on as the suffering servant of Isaiah, which is where we're going. Jesus is the one who comes to the earth to bear our sins. The power of all power, the glory of our, all glories coming to earth as the lowliest of the low. How do you get there? That's harder for our imaginations than the incarnation generally. So, we're going to walk through, if you have your Bibles, this would be a good time to open them up. We're going to walk through a passage in Isaiah, the last uh, from verse 14 of chapter 52 through uh, most of chapter 53. And let me just set this up for you. Isaiah lived about 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And Isaiah basically divides into two, chapters 1 through 39 and then chapters 40 through 66. When you get into chapter 40, Isaiah changes dramatically the reading and, and the, the points of reference. And what you start seeing is God starts talking about Israel as his servant. The term servant comes up again and again and again in chapters 40 and on. And it gets a little confusing sometimes because sometimes God says, Israel, the nation, is my servant. But other times, 18 by my count, my servant Israel isn't the nation, it's the nation's representative. And that's what we see when we get to chapter 52 and 53. And here, the suffering servant isn't the nation, it's the nation's representative. Today we know that it's Jesus. Back in the day, the Jews were unclear on this. It was ambiguous. But we're looking at the incarnation from Isaiah's perspective, and it's of the suffering servant. And you're going to see Isaiah mixes elements of the suffering servant's humiliation and suffering. So when we read through this, whether you read through or you listen through, and I'm going to actually excerpt parts. I'm not going to read every verse. I just want us to focus on the suffering and the humiliation of Jesus here. That's the big point for this morning. Uh, but as we do, we are reading before it occurs. We're reading about Jesus taking our humanity as a guy who's not a GQ handsome guy. He doesn't look like a king. That's what Isaiah tells us. That's what the Gospels tell us. And not only that, but we are reading about Jesus' torture by the Romans, by the crown of thorns, by the crucifixion itself. We're reading about His torture and His crucifixion here in Isaiah 52 and 53. So, if you've got your Bible, feel free to plug in here. And if not, close your eyes and, and simply listen as we read about the incarnation from Isaiah's vantage point. I'm starting at 52, verse 14. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance his form beyond that of the children of mankind. In other words, through his torture, he was unrecognizable. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. This blood sprinkling many nations is the language of sacrifice. That when a 
sacrifice was made, the blood was often sprinkled on those who would gain the benefit of that substitution. Chapter 53, Who has believed what He has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Speaking of the servant, He grew up before Him, before God, like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him. No beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised. We esteemed Him not. Yet, we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With His stripes we are healed. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that's before its shearers is silent, He opened not His mouth. By oppression and judgment He was taken away. And as for His generation, who considered that He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of My people? They made His grave with the wicked and with the rich man in His death. Although He had done no violence and there was no deceit in His mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him He put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. This is is one of the clearest portrayals of the crucifixion before it happened in all the Bible. Isaiah 52 and 53 is often used by Christians to talk to Jews about the fact that Jesus was the suffering servant that Israel was meant to expect. So, in this depiction of Jesus in the Incarnation, He's not only human and one of us, but He has got the worst treatment earth or heaven could dish out on any individual. Marred beyond resemblance after His scourging. Uh, Like a root in a desert land. No water around Him. He looked like He was struggling to survive. Despised and rejected was Jesus. A lamb to slaughter. Uh, crushed by Yahweh as an offering for sin. Interesting word, crushed. Crushed by His Father as an offering for sin. So Jesus here is not the high and the exalted one. But He is this nondescript man physically. He takes the absolute lowest place possible on planet earth. Remember that was the thought with crucifixion. Only the worst of the worst were crucified. Abused and crucified. In fact, so much so that he quoted Psalm 22, verse 1 from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So just let that sink in just a little bit. We wouldn't want to experience this. But remember that God is the the most emotional person in the universe. Our emotions mirror God's. For the Father to give His Son, or for the Son to suffer this kind of rejection, and the Father crushing Him, 
was emotionally experienced fully and perfectly beyond our ability to enter into. So, Isaiah describes the humiliation of the suffering servant, the one who represented Israel, and we know, in fact, ourselves in the world as well. So, what's that all about? So, why, why is the meaning of the Incarnation not known in Bethlehem, but only in Jerusalem 33-some years later? What's that about? Go back into Isaiah 53 and look at the substitutionary language. And the big deal is, you already know this, this is all about Jesus in our place. God dying for us. So at verse 4 it says, He bore our griefs. Have you ever felt sorrow or sadness or grief? Well, Jesus bore the griefs of the world. He carried our sorrows. Verse 5 says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that do us was on Him. And that last phrase in verse 5, with His stripes we are healed. This, this suffering servant, this humiliation of God become man was for our benefit. It was for our salvation. Verse 8 says, He was stricken for the transgression of My people. And last, verse 10 and 11, he shall see his offspring. There's this thought that the suffering servant dies on the cross with no successive generations. He dies without children. But then you find out that's not going to be the way it ends. In fact, spiritually, if you've trusted in Jesus, you are his spiritual children today. Not just children of the Father, but because Jesus is the last Adam, we come spiritually from him. We are Christ's descendants. You couldn't see it in His death on the cross, but we do see it through His resurrection. Verse 11 says, Out of the anguish of His soul He shall see and be satisfied. By His knowledge shall the righteous one, My servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. So we say the humiliation of Christ is for our healing, our spiritual healing, and for our restoration. Why the humiliation of Jesus? For us. That's why. So, to what ends would God the Son go to save us? Guys, this is, if you read a passage like this, the cross, uh, sort of foreshadowed from the Old Testament, or you read about the crucifixion scenes, or you read the theology of all that in the epistles, if you say, to what end would God go to save you? What limit was there on His love for you and me? There was no limit. So Jesus becomes one of us to take the very lowest form possible to take all the penalty due your sins and mine by the perfect holy wrath of God. The term crushing there representing that so that you and I could be saved. So to what length would the Son of God go to save you and me? He would do whatever it took. No limit on what He would do. To what ends also would the Father go to heap glory on the Son you know, we don't think about this often when we talk about Jesus' suffering, but Jesus is clear in the Gospels, and so are the epistles, that the crucifixion, that the suffering servant, that Jesus' humiliation was always meant not just for our salvation, but it was the manner in which God the Father would heap glory on the Son. Because Jesus would come, in Jesus humbling Himself, God is honored and glorified. And when Jesus conquers sin and death, you know, the language of the New Testament, God says that He made Him 
Lord of lords and King of kings, but He only did that as one of us. So the suffering servant was always a point on the path God the Father established for God the Son so that He could heap additional glory and honor on Him. To what depths would the Son go out of His love for us to save us? To the, to the deepest point possible. To what degree would God the Father go to honor His Son? He would consign Him to the lowest point of suffering possible so that He could be exalted to the highest place possible. That's the humiliation of the suffering servant. Let that sink in for a second. And then as we go to the application, my big deal this morning, this is huge, this is a big deal, but if we just said, that's nice, Jesus saved me, wasn't that a nice thing for Him to do? That would fall short of where we want to go with this. This is a big deal for us on point of application. So, when we consider God in His awesomeness as the ultimate object of fear, dread, joy, and wonder, the transformation should be a kind of holy circumspection. I gain a greater sense of who God is, what He's like, and I realize more fully who I am and what I'm like. And there's a holy kind of reverence. There's, a, there's an appropriate fear. There's an appropriate helpful circumspection on my limitations and my lowly estate before God, all of which is really helpful. But when we consider God in Christ humbling Himself from the One who fills the universe to the One who hung on the cross as the worst sort of human, the vilest sort of sinner, the transformation, guys, required of us is our own humiliation. When we behold Jesus as the suffering servant, we shouldn't just be thankful that He bore our sins. The requirement for those of us who call ourselves His followers is humility. The lowest form of humility. Just like Christ. Transformation in the image of the suffering servant requires us to take up our cross, to die to ourself, and to put to death the sinful tendencies to make ourselves the center of the universe. Did you know uh, pride is, is the worst form of idolatry? It's a stench to God. And do you know our sinful natures, they have nothing but pride? Do you know every sin we ever commit is born initially of pride? And pride is that very basic element of our unrenewed self that will never change. It would never give God glory. It would never try and please someone else. Its life is all about pleasing itself. That's all it brings to the, to the game. So, as those who say we believe in a crucified Savior, the call on us is to live what's called cruciform living. Jesus was plain about this in the Gospels. Take up your cross and follow Me. And that means we die to who and what we were. And we say yes to who and what Jesus has now called us to be. And guys, first and foremost, it's humility. You cannot walk as a Christian in pride. It's a contradiction in terms. Transformation in the image of God made sin for us is the willingness to take the lowest place and to serve instead of seeking to be served. Take the lowest place to serve instead of seeking to be served. Uh, listen to this from 1 Peter. <clears throat> the early church knew something about suffering. By the way, you know, the early chapters of Acts talk about what the early church went through in way of suffering and persecution. 
and also showed us how the apostles responded. And they'd heard this from Jesus before He left them in death and resurrection. He told them, you'll be persecuted. And go through it like I did. And Peter, when he wrote his first letter, that's exactly what he brings up. This is from 1 Peter 2, verses 21-23. through Pete says, to this you have been called. To what? To suffer. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. We're to live life in persecution and suffering the same way Jesus did. He's the example. So that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin. The suffering servant didn't suffer because he was guilty of anything. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. That's humility. He said, I won't take matters into my own hand. I'll entrust my judgment to God. When people speak ill of me, I'm not going to turn around and do the same to them. The next time we're tempted to respond in kind when someone's accusatory, unkind, selfish, hurtful, spiteful, remember Jesus as the suffering servant. It's exactly what Peter brings up here. Peter's referring to Isaiah 52 and 53. Peter's referring to Jesus on the cross here. Jesus in His persecution and torture and death. And he says this is how he faced it. And he is our example. We cannot face persecution and suffering with pride as a Christian. Christ is the model and the example. Now also, you might want to turn to Philippians 2. I'm going to read from verses 3 through 12, 12-13. And guys, remember that this passage is not specifically written to tell us Uh, theology or Christology. This passage is Paul's enjoining on believers how they're supposed to live. And in the middle of that, he talks about Jesus in His humiliation because that's the model for us. So, he says, these are the exhortations, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Have you ever thought you, you want the church you're in to be bigger and better than the church you came from or that your friends are in. You know, there's, there's competition in, the, in churches. Is that crazy? Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each, of if, uh, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So now, here we go. The exhortations to be humble, no rivalry, no conceit, take care of others. Why? Have the same mind in yourselves that Christ had. Who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is in the Incarnation. He made Himself nothing. So God comes down from heaven, becomes man, took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself again by becoming obedient to the point of death. He didn't just die, he took another step lower and went down to death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself, humbled himself, humbled himself, humbled himself. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbled Himself. God will now exalt Him. Verse 12, Therefore, because this is what Jesus did, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling is humility of mind. It's looking out for the affairs of others. It's having the same mind that Jesus had. You're not gaining salvation. That's fully accomplished on the cross. Work out your salvation is follow Christ in His humiliation and live a life of cruciform living. We've taken up our cross. Living as that proud, sinful self we used to be isn't an option. I'm humbling myself because Jesus humbled Himself. Pride for me is not an option. So, God at work in us based on the suffering servant and the life of the one who humbled himself fully requires of us humility as sort of the first fruit, if you will, of being Christians. Think through some of these things with me. I've done a few teachings that I had singular uh, feedback and response from. And one of those was a teaching on pride a couple of years ago. And you know, we generally think we're doing okay on humility and still... in until we start looking at our life sort of and start checking boxes and realize I'm not humble the way I thought I was. I'm proud in ways I wasn't thinking about or considering. How is it possible for us to claim to follow the crucified Savior and walk in pride towards others? How can I do that? How can I say I'm a Christian and entertain pride? How can we say we believe in Jesus and think any Labor is beneath our dignity. There's no job that's too menial for us. If Jesus went to the cross for us, we can change diapers at home or in the nursery. We can clean the auditorium we meet in Sunday. We can take the trash out. There's no job too low for a Christian. By our calling. If Jesus died on the cross for us, there's no work beneath our dignity. Or how can we call ourselves followers of Christ? And remember, these are the descriptions Jesus gives of Himself in Isaiah and Philippians. He wanted to be remembered in His humiliation. He's got a future glory. He's in the glory now, and we're, we'll see that. But He's telling us now, as far as our own lifestyle goes, remember Him in His humiliation. How can we call ourselves His followers and make our own comforts and agendas our goals instead of God's glory and purposes. And generally that means in the ways we serve others. How are we putting on Jesus today in humility to glorify the Father and to serve others? What does that look like? I'm going to close with an excerpt from a magazine article. This was in Touchstone Magazine uh, this summer. It's written by a guy named S.M. Hutchins. And the context... Uh, starts a, a little off. Um, Hutchins is talking about Christians and the church's propensity to want to be able to impress the world around us. The world that rejects Jesus, that mocks the suffering servant, the church, Christians, often try to impress. And he starts with that supposition. But then he's extrapolating what will it look like for that kind of church when suffering comes upon it. 
when suffering and persecution and humiliation comes upon the church, what will this kind of church look like? That's the context. Listen to what he says. Woe to us, left in the end with nothing but the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We will lose the buildings and their furniture. The clergy will be stripped of their vestments and diplomas. Gone will be the organs, drums, the guitars, the pianos, the cymbals, tambourines, the choirs, the praise teams, and all manner of music. Gone will be the incense, the amplification, the books, the curricula, all else that could give away our worship to the world, much less impress it. Bibles will be illegal and hard to find, as they are in all places where evil bears political sway. The seminary professors will flee as vapor. Tell me, though, is this not a glory and an immeasurable comfort to be left with nothing but what is worthy of love, with no apology but what is worthy of faith, to be shed of innumerable false brethren who will disappear as soon as there is a cost to discipleship, to be rid of the burden of property and endless church business, to understand with clarity that much we once felt obligated to say we can cease saying in favor of the one thing needful. To take comfort that life on earth is short instead of being tempted to the folly of thinking it is not. To have no doubts or questions about the meaning of life as long as one remains a Christian. To experience the likelihood of having those who come to us come for what we can actually provide, come sincerely, and in extremis, sick of the world, ready to die, and so to meet the Lord. He concludes, while not denying a theology of glory or its right and necessary anticipation in the world, we anticipate a future glory with Christ, we set it in its place in and through the cross of a grotesquely injured man of sorrows of whom we who believe looking up to him say we cannot forget that beauty. That the ultimate beauty of God in Christ is seen in His love, in His humiliation on the cross, not in some other kind of glory and splendor. And that's what we're left with. The glory that we serve a crucified Savior and we have a Gospel that God still uses today to save men and women. In future days, Jesus will be exalted on earth as He is today in heaven. We will be with Him in glory. But for now, we're called to a transformation away from pride to our own humility and lowliness. Father, thanks that there was no burden too large, no hill too steep, no sin too great to keep Jesus from taking those on Himself, bearing the burden of our sins, being crushed, Lord, in Your holy judgment so that we could live again. Father, as believers in Jesus, would You help us to put away pride and proud thoughts and proud living? Would You help us to embrace the humility and the lowliness Jesus embraced for us Lord, out of that, would you help us manifest him to the world in his name? Amen.